0: Love, Talk Radio. From Lives in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Hello there, and welcome to today's program. Uh, As always, I'm delighted that you've uh, decided to spend a little time thinking about collaborative problem solving. And, uh, well, I'm delighted about that, but I'm sorry that, believe it or not, this is our last CPS at school of this school year. Next Monday is Memorial Day, and um, we uh, don't do the program in June, July, and August. Um, so, a little sad there, but, um, well, we're going to get to a lot of email today that's stacked up over time, um, stuff that I haven't been able to get to in quite a while. And uh, then don't worry, we're back again in September. Um, And some cool things planned for September. I'm not going to go through it all, but of course we're going to continue with our educators panel next school year. And of course we're going to continue with periodic check-ins with Anytown High School. We're also going to start with a new AnyTown, an AnyTown Elementary, and if things go well, we're going to be getting permission to listen in on recordings of uh, meetings in which the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems is being used, and also listen in on the Plan B efforts of the staff at uh, Anytown Elementary so that we can really hear people trying to do Plan B and really hear the feedback that they're going to be getting so that they can get better and better. Uh, Always trying to think of new things here at uh, Lives in the Balance for ways to help people learn about this model and um, always looking for ways to do it free. And that's free. Now, another uh, planned um, uh, feature for next year's program. I'm sorry, I'm tweeting at the same time that I'm speaking here. I should tweet before the program starts, but I usually don't remember it until the theme music goes on. And then I tweet in the first few minutes here, and I shouldn't do that. But now I have tweeted, and now I can remember I can actually think about what I wanted to talk about. My apologies. Uh, We're also going to be interviewing one uh, school leader per month for the uh, big project on collaborative problem solving that's going on in Maine these days. We've got 14 different schools in Maine implementing collaborative problem solving. By the time we're back on uh, in the fall... Uh, the website for that project should be launched, and you can read about each school and how they've been implementing collaborative problem-solving and the hurdles they've had to overcome and how they've overcome them. And and, um, what else will you hear where they're at now? Uh, Some schools are further along than others, as you might uh, expect, and um, you're going to hear what they're doing. Cool, eh? I had a nice... uh, visit out to San Francisco and Portland, Oregon last Thursday and Friday. And um, always nice to see that there's lots of collaborative problem solving going on in those places as well. Who knows, maybe we have some people from one of those places listening in on today's program today. Well, let me give you that call-in number. Today is your last chance for about three months to call in and get any questions answered that you might like. Of course, we do get fewer callers on uh, this program than we do on the parents' program. Parents' program, we usually have somebody calling in every week, unplanned, sometimes three or four people. Uh, this program, less so, just, you know, uh, bad time of the day. Uh, people are just getting out of school Eastern time, often not out of school yet Central, and it gets worse from there. Nighttime over in Europe where we have listeners, Um so that number 646-727-2691 if you have any end of the school year questions or comments or whatever feel free to call in um 646-727-2691 let's turn our attention to uh some of the questions that we have and uh, we're going to get them, we're going to get through all of them today so that uh, none are left over for the fall and then we'll uh start answering questions again and again in the fall. Here's a question. Uh, Dr. Green, do you have a procedure form for conducting FBAs? If not, do you have any recommendations? We do sort of an informal antecedent behavior consequence and result of behavior model. Uh, Okay, well, here's the hard part about using an FBA form that's focused on antecedents, behaviors, and consequences you're unlikely to be focused when you're focused on those, on the raw material of collaborative problem solving, which is lagging skills and unsolved problems. So uh, we are in the midst of developing a form that people could use for FBAs, but quite frankly all it's going to do is have people uh, documenting a kid's lagging skills and unsolved problems. So the form I would actually recommend at the moment – is the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, which you can find on the uh, in the paperwork section of the Lives in the Balance website. Um, it's your instrument for guiding discussions uh, about a student's lagging skills and unsolved problems. Now, part of the problem with part of the reason I like unsolved problems better than antecedents even though they are roughly, but only roughly, synonymous, is that when people are looking for antecedents, they tend to look at what occurred just before the kids' challenging episode occurred as the cause of that episode. And what happened right before the challenging episode is frequently not what set the challenging episode in motion. So I'm not big on antecedents. I'm not big on triggers. I used to use that term frequently, but don't use it at all anymore. I prefer unsolved problems because it's unsolved problems, problems waiting to be solved, problems yet to be solved, that are really setting in motion challenging episodes, and that's what we want to document on our FBA. Um we also want to make sure that people have the right lenses on. See, the FBA is really important because it sets the stage for all that is to come. I mean, I often say that about the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. It sets the stage for all that is to come. But what we decide, our definition of the function of a kid's challenging behavior is has a great deal to do with what we're going to end up doing about it, how we're going to try to help. And Traditional FBAs tend to focus on the manner in which the behavior is working for the child as the function for the student, as the function of the challenging behavior. And, of course, the traditional definition of working, how is the behavior working? It's working at helping the kid get something, for example, attention, or escape or avoid something, and escape or avoid something, like homework or Uh, something tedious or challenging or uncomfortable or scary or boring. The word working is key. As many of you know who've heard me speak lately, I'm, I'm not saying the behavior isn't working in some narrow, limited way. I'm saying that definition of function is too narrow and too limited and doesn't go far enough. What kind of interventions if if our explanation guides our intervention and we believe that a student 's challenging behavior is working, then I believe that we will be pointed directly toward interventions aimed at proving to the child that his challenging behavior is not going to work That message of course, is usually delivered in the form of punishment and um, giving the kid to giving the kid the incentive to uh, do something, a replacement behavior, generally speaking, that we adults believe will work better, that usually accomplished through use of reward. So what I've come to call our first-pass definition of function has led us directly to what we most frequently do. We reward the behaviors we like, we punish the behaviors we don't, and now we're in the business of giving kids the incentive to perform replacement behaviors that I, since I believe that kids do well if they can, that I believe they have the incentive to do already. So let me just paraphrase kids do well if they can. If a kid had the skills to do the replacement behaviors, he'd be doing the replacement behaviors already. That's what our traditional definition of function is. Frequently leads us to, and that's what the vast majority of FBAs I've seen concluded. But what if our definition of the word function is that the behavior is simply communicating to us that the kid doesn't have the skills to do it better? In the collaborative problem solving territories, that is the true definition of function. The behavior simply proves to us, communicates to us that the student doesn't have the skills to do it better. Now we've been pointed in a completely different direction in terms of the lenses that we're wearing, and we've also been pointed in a completely different direction as it relates to intervention. Kid is lacking skills, and if those lagging skills are getting in the way in specific conditions that I call unsolved problems, the goal of intervention is to help the student solve those problems, problems he or she is clearly having difficulty solving on his or her own, and simultaneously doing it in a way that simultaneously teaches the student the skills he or she is lacking. That's a different... FBA, I really think the main form that you need is the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. But the main thing you need is a different definition of the word function and an emphasis not on getting, escaping, and avoiding, not on antecedent behavior consequence, but rather lagging skills and unsolved problems. I hope I answered the question. Let's move to a related question. Let me see if I can find it here. Just a moment. Got one that's related in the queue here. Hold on, gotta be the next one because there aren't any others left. Here we go. Dr. Green, I am facilitating an online book discussion of Lost at School. I'm reading and discussing the book with 22 educators from the U.S. and Canada. We are discussing the first part of Chapter 2, kicking around the idea of can't versus won't. Several, Several participants are uncomfortable with the idea of can, particularly when they consider typical kids, it seems that the Average kid and adult makes lots of choices that reflect willful choosing in the face of having necessary skills to do the right thing. When you assert the philosophy of kids do well if they can, are you thinking all kids all the time? Or are you thinking primarily of students who are lost at school? Thanks in advance for your thoughts. Well, thanks right now for your question. A very good one. Boy, you know, that can't versus won't. Thing is a pretty powerful belief system. It sounds like the group is not just struggling with it as it relates to kids who are behaviorally challenging, but is struggling with it if I'm email if I'm understanding your email correctly, as it relates to typical kids. Does kids do all well if they can apply full time? to typical kids, and um, we'll put typical in quotes since we don't know what it means. Uh, I think it does. I apply kids do well if they can to all kids. I apply kids do well if they can to all adults as well. Teachers do well if they can. Parents do well if they can. Principals do well if they can. Um Along with the doing well if they can mantra is another related mantra in the collaborative problem-solving approach. And that is, doing well is preferable. Doing well is preferable. My experience of the typical kid is that they prefer doing well. They certainly don't prefer doing poorly. And so now variability in performance comes into play. Um, I'm always motivated to do a good workshop, to do a good talk, and there are some days on which I would give myself a decent grade and other days on which I would give myself a lower grade if I was grading my performance, and sometimes I do. I think about the parts of the... Talk that I'd that I wish I'd have done better. Things I may have neglected to say that I'd like to be able to say. But I always want to do a good talk. So what would account for the fact that some days I do a better talk, at least in my opinion, than others? Is that I'm less motivated on some days than others? On on some days I want to do a good talk, and on others I am willfully choosing. In the face of having necessary skills, I'm willfully choosing to do a less good talk? No. I don't think that's what's going on with me. I don't think that's what's going on with kids. And I'm always troubled that we almost automatically invoke motivational explanations for variability in human performance kids included. Uh, is performance exactly constant all the time? No, I mean, geez, uh, let's see, what, what are some of the reasons that I might not do as good a talk as I would like? Um, depends what time my airplane landed the night before the talk. Depends on how well I slept the night before the talk. It on what other pressures are coming to bear that I might be at least subconsciously thinking about during a talk. Uh, Lots of things could be affecting whether I'm performing as well as I sometimes do. Please, Please don't hold my good talks against me when I'm doing a not so good one, I don't know if I can hit that standard every single time, much as I might like to, but I always want to do a good talk. Sometimes life gets in the way, and why would it be any different with kids, behaviorally challenging or otherwise? Uh, my opinion is that it wouldn't be. So... um there's the answer. I don't think behaviorally challenging kids are really that much different from not so challenging kids. Um, I think kids do all well if they can is a constant across all people and kids. And I'm sorry that we automatically invoke motivation whenever a kid isn't hitting the bar at the level we've sometimes seen him hit the bar at. There could be lots of other things getting in the way. Um, Even some lagging skills getting in the way. Even though a kid might be typical. Boy, I know a lot of typical kids, and they're all lacking skills. Some of them are very strong academically, and they aren't behaviorally challenging, but they're still not very good at appreciating the impact of their behavior on others. That's why they might give another kid a hard time. Saw that going on in a school classroom I was observing in this morning. These were typical kids who uh, made another little girl in a kindergarten classroom cry because they had been teasing her about something. They know they're not supposed to tease, and yet somehow it happened anyways poor motivation they're willfully choosing to do the wrong thing or is there a better explanation than that lagging skills just like kids do all if they can and doing well is preferable don't only apply to behaviorally challenging kids lagging skills don't only apply to behaviorally challenging kids either We're all lacking skills and sometimes those lagging skills bite us even though in the conditions in which they do bite us, we're not exhibiting significant behavioral challenges. I hope that uh, takes care of that one. Let's move to another Uh, Dr. Green, I was wondering if sensory integration could be a sixth pathway to explore. This is something neurological within the child that could be addressed as part of the CPS model. Is the CPS model fixed or can it evol- can it evolve? Well, it continues to evolve. One of the ways in which it has evolved is that, um, well, we don't talk about pathways anymore. And I don't group the lagging skills by category anymore. Number one, the categories are kind of artificial. Number two, I find that, yeah, that's right, they're artificial. They overlap so much that kind of artificial to pretend that they fit within certain categories. Plus, I find that the more we use the categories of lagging skills, the less people talk about the specific skills a child is lacking and then a lot of the very important information that comes along with talking about the specific lagging skills and a lot of the understanding that goes along with that, it's lost when we just say executive skills or emotion regulation skills or language processing and communication skills. I think that that's, those categories really, I mean, they move the process forward a little bit, but not very much. So, there are no pathway categories anymore. Now, am I a believer in sensory processing issues? Absolutely. Um, And at some point, I guess it's conceivable that I could put those in the lagging skill section at a sensory skill. And actually, I think I like that idea very much. On the other hand, sensory processing issues could fit quite nicely as well as unsolved problems. So I haven't been tremendously energized to add them as a lagging skill that's possible to because we could easily cover them in the unsolved problems section um, so yeah why not but um, I'm not sure we need the categories sensory included even though I believe that um Oops, I was moving on to the next question already and lost my train of thought. Um, I don't think we need the categories of lagging skills to really help us accomplish the mission. All right, now let's move on to the one that I had already begun previewing before I finished my thought there. Uh, Dr. Green, could you send me information on resources that will help students improve their skill deficits? I'm very excited about collaborative problem solving and I'd like to implement it in our school. However, I'm wondering if there's any information on or recommendations on building the needed skills. Thank you for the amazingly healthy and useful approach to looking at challenging behaviors. Well, you're very welcome. And um, so here's the deal. There's two ways to teach a skill. Directly, indirectly. When you're teaching a skill directly, you are directly giving the student tips, feedback, coaching on the development strategies on the development of that skill. And that's fantastic for some things. I think that that can be fantastic for some language processing and communication skills, as in the form of what a lot of speech and language therapists do. And I think that that can be fantastic for some social skills, as in the form of what Michelle Garcia-Winner does with her social thinking program. If you're not familiar with her work, it's socialthinking.com. Michelle, as I've mentioned on a few other programs, has done a fantastic job of, number one, being very specific about the social skills kids could be lacking. Boy, there sure are a lot of them. And she's been very specific about ways in which to go about teaching those skills, sometimes directly, Um, all on socialthinking.com. I'm a big admirer of Michelle's work. But that leaves the rest of the lagging skills on the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems and it's not completely clear that there are effective technologies for teaching the vast majority of lagging skills remaining in the lagging skill section of the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems so uh, my sense is that we are probably best off teaching those skills directly uh, indirectly excuse me and how do you do that the short answer is by doing plan b Here's the long answer. If a particular lagging skill, and I've talked about this before, for example, difficulty making transitions, is true of a kid, Uh, if you're using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems correctly, then the next thing you do is move on to the unsolved problems, the specific conditions in which that lagging skill is getting in the way for the student. So here's the example I always use. I apologize if you've heard it before. Let's say that Bobby is having difficulty making transitions. That's a lagging skill. Let's say that one of the conditions in which Bobby is having difficulty making transitions, this would be an unsolved problem, is moving from choice time, where he's playing the game, to math, which he also likes. Let's say we solve that problem collaboratively with Bobby. He's involved in solving the problem from the word go. He he helps us understand what's getting in his way. That would be the empathy step of plan B. We let him know what our concerns are. That would be the define the problem step of plan B, and then he and we brainstorm solutions so as to come up with one that addresses the concerns of both parties and is realistic. Bobby uh, is involved in identifying and formulating the problem and identifying and formulation formulating solutions. Uh, he's in on the ground floor. Let's say we solve that problem collaboratively. Good, a lot of good things have already happened. Uh good thing number 1, that unsolved problem won't be setting in motion challenging episodes anymore, that's a good thing, but good thing number two, we've now practiced with Bobby and come up with a solution for solving uh, one difficulty making transitions. Is Bobby really good at making transitions yet? No. Is he a little bit better uh, on the basis of now having solved one problem that involved making transitions yeah he's a little better can he apply the solution that he was in on the ground floor on in other words this is very different than plan A which is where we're simply telling the kid what the solution is I don't know what he learns from that we're the ones who came up with the solution not only was he not a party to it uh, he didn't even think about it so hmm I don't know if he's learning anything when we're doing Plan A, when we've decided what the solution is. I do think he learns something about making transitions when we're doing Plan B. He's not great at it yet. We've only once solved one problem involving making transitions so far, but he's a little better. And I think he'll be a little better still when we solve another problem involving making transitions. And yet another, and slowly but surely, Bobby is now building up a repertoire of solutions for what he can do when he's having trouble making transitions. He's getting better and better. And by the way, Bobby's learning a new skill the same way most of us learn new skills. Yes, I know, on many new skills... You're provided a little initial direct instruction. I'm actually not sure that's going to serve us very well as it relates to difficulty-making transitions. But then how do we get good at that skill? We practiced it, and when it didn't go so well, we figured out how to do it better, and if we needed it, hopefully there was an adult to help us get better and better at it. That's how you do it. That's how we're going to do it with Bobby. Now, that's how we'll help Bobby get better at making transitions. So a few other points. Is Bobby really good at making... Will Bobby ever really be good at making transitions? I don't know. Maybe he'll become a world-class transition maker. But to tell you the truth, I'm not sure I'm looking for world-class skills. I'm looking for Bobby... To get better at making transitions so that maybe someday he can do it on his own without having a challenging episode to let us know that he's still not good at it. That's that's when you know Bobby's gotten better at making transitions. When he's no longer having challenging episodes related to making transitions. That's when. So to remind you of the answer that I gave earlier the the lagging skills in that instance are being taught indirectly because I'm not sure there's a great technology for teaching kids to make transitions better directly like a lot of the other skills and that's okay I don't mind that That, that, as you heard earlier there are some skills that we might teach directly I don't think making transitions or most of the other lagging skills on the LSIP are among them practice, trial and error, the way most of us learned the skills we believe we now have. So here's another big point, though. Are you helping the student learn a whole bunch of other skills? And forget making transitions, Uh, just a whole bunch of other skills when you're doing just plain old plan B on anything. Yeah. Yeah. In the empathy step, you're teaching a child to identify his concerns and articulate them and express them in ways that other people can understand. And in the define the problem step, he's learning how to listen to another person's concerns and tolerate it without losing it and take those concerns into account and stay with it long enough to really understand what the person is trying to say. In the invitation student is learning how to brainstorm solutions and solutions that not only address their concerns but somebody else's concerns and think about whether those solutions are realistic and mutually satisfactory and project those solutions into the future so as to evaluate likely outcomes and go back to the drawing board if it doesn't look like it's going to pan out so well. Kids are learning tons of new skills just by mere virtue of being engaged in the process of collaborative problem solving. I hope that answer makes sense. And now it's time for the last question of the 2011-2012 school year until we get more for the fall. Dr. Green, I'm struggling on how I can be using the ALSIP and identifying unsolved problems that With kids that present with excessive anxiety, a large portion of my caseload, I take a CBT, for for those who aren't familiar with that term, cognitive behavioral therapy approach, but would like to incorporate CPS with the parent work that I do. Um, Can you point me to some resources to help me? Well, that's a harder question than it sounds like, believe it or not. Here's the answer. I I don't necessarily group kids by internalizing presentations, for example, anxiety or depression, externalizing presentations, for example, tantrums, oppositionality, noncompliance. I don't group them that way. First of all, there's a lot of overlap. A lot of kids throw tantrums because they're anxious, if we were to be so oversimplified about it. And a lot of kids who throw tantrums are very irritable, and some people would even call them depressed. So uh, I don't really look at excessive anxiety as where to start. It's just where I think the kid is ending up when he's looking bad. He's anxious. Anxious is... How he's responding to any variety of unsolved problems, and what kinds of unsolved problems do kids frequently get anxious about? Well, you know we have disorders named after these things uh they get they, they get uh anxious if they have to separate from their parents they get anxious if they have to perform in front of others they get anxious uh in preparation for tests for taking a test that they get anxious in um, if they have to go to a party and be in a social situation they But there's kids who pitch fits in response to those exact same things. And so while I think that collaborative problem solving is very applicable to anxiety, that's really only because I think collaborative problem solving is applicable to any of the different ways in which kids or adults respond maladaptively to the unsolved problems that are causing them to act or behave that way or feel that way in the first place. So, I can't say that there is a specific strategy for responding to anxiety per se, because I don't really respond to anxiety any differently than I would any other presentation that is a response to an unsolved problem. In other words, if a student is becoming anxious because they have to go to school, That's an unsolved problem, and we need to do plan B so that that problem is solved. Once the problem is solved, once we feel we understand very well what the student's concern or perspective is about going to school, and once they understand our concern, and once that problem is solved collaboratively, I think we're good to go. Now, if there is residual anxiety... I'd want to hear more about what that's about. And I'm not ruling out sort of some of the classic exposure and response prevention interventions that are frequently applied to anxiety. Just saying, uh, number one, I would probably try to fit collaborative problem solving into those interventions in some way. But to tell you the truth, if you're doing those interventions well, It really is sort of more of a collaborative process than one that is being imposed on a kid if you're doing it well. And they're a full participant in their own treatment. So I'm not saying that those things wouldn't also be coming into play. I'm just saying that I'm more likely to be very focused on the unsolved problem that is setting in motion the anxiety in the first place. I'm working on that and simultaneously working on the anxiety. But I'm not focused primarily on the behavior, the anxiety, just like I wouldn't primarily be focused on the tantrum or the screaming fit or the whatever the student is doing to look bad, no matter where the student is on the look spectrum of looking bad. I'm trying to solve the problems that are causing the student to look bad in the first place once again, much more focused on the unsolved problem than on the behavior. hope that answer makes sense. If it doesn't, well, you can email me uh, uh, through the Lives in the Balance website again, and I'll try to answer it over this summer, though who knows. Um, otherwise, we'll hold it until the beginning of next school year when we will uh, start this all- over again so I hope it's been a good school year for you I hope that uh, your school has made some strides in moving in the direction of implementing collaborative problem solving this year Uh, some schools I'm sure I know have made greater headway than others others are just getting started Others are just planning to get started next year. Uh, It doesn't matter where your school is on the journey. There's always further to go, and at least you're on the collaborative problem-solving highway. But there are so many schools out there that don't even know about the collaborative problem-solving highway yet. Um, So, Let's not only think about your school, let's think about the other schools that are out there that you may know about that aren't yet even aware of collaborative problem solving and therefore haven't yet even begun their journey. Tell them about the website. Tell a colleague at the school about the website. Tell a colleague about Lost at School and maybe they'll get a book study going on lost at school send them a lives in the balance care package there are so many ways to get the ball rolling Um, I was just posting the uh, good and bad news a few more segments on the lives in the balance website uh, just this morning and um, boy there's so much more work to be done so First of all, thanks for listening. Secondly, for whatever progress you've made in moving your building in the direction of collaborative problem solving this school year, good for you. I thank you. The kids thank you. It may not feel like it yet, but other members of the staff thank you. You're moving things in the right direction in your building, no matter how slowly you may feel it's going. At least you're on the highway. Yes, people do get off on various exits on the highway, and we got to get them back on the highway again once we figure out why they turned off. But um, at least you're getting the ball rolling. And in many buildings, they got a lot to show for it. So I hope that your summer is re-energizing, rejuvenating, because um, you got more work to do when you get back to school next fall, and we're going to be right there helping you every step along the way on this program. Thanks again for listening, and um, have a great summer, and I look forward to being back with you again in the fall. Take care.